our scripture reading and sermon text, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One thing that I have noticed in recent months is that there are many Christians out there becoming very excited about a a message of cultural takeover and cultural victory by the Christian church that is coming down the road. We are experiencing in our day what many people are calling a loss of Christendom. It feels like the culture is triumphing over us. And so there is a proposed solution to this dilemma that can become very appealing. Let's fight fire with fire. Let's fight like with like. Let's challenge the culture on its own terms. Then we, the church, will triumph over it. Some are envisioning a time in the future where the church will achieve worldwide glory, exaltation, and dominion before the return of Jesus Christ. 
The church will become wealthy. The church will become powerful. The church will become, once again, influential and important. As we hear these messages, we get energized because this is not what we are experiencing right now. This message of impending triumph and victory gives us hope. Others among us are not so concerned with those meta-questions of cultural triumph and victory. We just happen to be beaten down by our sins. Perhaps we are feeling overwhelmed by them. They seem to be always pestering us and plaguing us. Sin seems to be ruining things for us. And once again, we are offered proposed solutions. And these solutions can become very appealing. Follow these steps and you'll experience the victorious Christian life. Just have this spiritual revival and experience and you won't struggle with sin any longer. Oh, you're not experiencing victory in your Christian life? Well, that's because you just need the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. And... This message then of impending Christian triumph over our personal sins, well, this too becomes very appealing and can give us a sense of hope. The problem with the aforementioned is that our victory is not ever to be characterized in any sort of earthly terms. As we discover in today's text, the victory of our king and the victory of his kingdom are of the heavenly sort, you could say. We do not conquer in this spiritual battle with earthly weapons of earthly warfare. Instead, we enjoy the victory of Jesus Christ and the victorious Christian life first by receiving the heavenly word. Second, by recognizing the kingdom's shape. And third, by realizing our Christian callings. Our text today begins in Caesarea Philippi. This is a city that screamed out earthly power and earthly glory. It was to the north of the Sea of Galilee, up among the Gentiles, and founded by those with great earthly wealth, influence, and power founded to celebrate Caesar and that imperial cult, that pantheon of gods, filled with pagan temples, filled with much influence. Caesarea Philippi itself even had a particular cave that was believed to be bottomless. It was widely believed to be itself the very gate into Hades. A waterfall poured down into this cave and seemed to go down forever. Down, down into the netherworld, into Sheol. And so sacrificial animals could be thrown into it, as well as people who were accused of crimes. The pagan gods were believed to venture down into the bottomless pit, down into Hades, as winter approached, and then to emerge again, in the spring, as Jesus arrived to this city with his disciples, this city which was outwardly so victorious, so triumphant with wealth 
and with pagan importance. You could think that Jesus was arriving with a message of cultural overthrow. That'd be the place to do it. And that's the very thing they're expecting Messiah to do, right? He's coming to conquer Caesar. What better place than a place named after him? He's here to outdo the pagan religions and to show his muscle and might and to drive them out and ex ex um, exceed them in earthly glory, right? Well, if he were to do that, this would be the place. And although Peter was expecting this sort of victorious Christian message, it is not at all what Jesus had in mind. The victorious Christian life, you see, would not be a matter of earthly glory, but glory would be achieved instead through suffering and through death. The victorious Christian life would not be a matter of cultural achievements, but it would be characterized by self-denial. We enjoy the Christian life again first by receiving that heavenly word, second by recognizing the kingdom's shape, and third by realizing our callings. And so, let us begin with that first point. First, receive the heavenly word. We come now to learn from Peter's example that we must rely on what comes down from heaven. In our text, Peter experiences both the best of times and the worst of times in rapid succession. We first see how he is given a privileged place in the church as he receives the nickname Rock. Then, we see him turn against Jesus and earn the title Satan. What in the world is going on in this very controversial text as, that serves as something of a hinge in Matthew's Gospel? You see, this text divides Matthew's Gospel into its two component parts. The first half being about the identity of Jesus. Peter gets that right. And then as the hinge swings, the whole gospel pivots toward what Christ had come to do. To suffer, to be put to death, and later to be raised. Peter does not exactly understand that quite yet. Let's begin by lingering over Peter's success, which brings the first half of the gospel to a close. Jesus asks the disciples about popular opinion regarding his identity. Then, after they answer his question, he asks them what they think. It's unclear here whether Peter is answering on their behalf as their spokesman or whether he is speaking for himself. But nevertheless, Peter answers correctly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that is exactly what Matthew's Gospel teaches us through the first 15 chapters. It leads you and me, taking us by the hand, to this very conclusion. That Jesus is that promised Messiah. And Peter, being an eyewitness of his teaching, and an eyewitness of his signs and wonders, Peter understands it. 
And so Jesus celebrates this great confession that brings the first half of the gospel to a close. And just as Pete, uh, Jesus, um, pardon me, just as Peter named him Christ, so Jesus then celebrates by naming Peter Rock. Just as Peter named Jesus Son of the living God, Jesus celebrates by naming Peter Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. There's a symmetry into what's going on as Jesus celebrates the confession of Peter. Most significant to our purposes at present, Jesus tells us that Peter's realization was spiritual and was bestowed from heaven. This is very significant. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had received the heavenly word. But something very different happens now when Matthew's gospel pivots from his identity toward Christ's suffering and impending death. For the first time, Jesus reveals this incredible fact that he would suffer, die, and be raised. And this was so distasteful to Peter, indeed so appalling to Peter, that he actually confronted and rebuked the one whom he just called Messiah. He rebukes his very own king. Now, the text is suggesting something important for us. It's suggesting that Peter got a little taste of earthly glory. And then he couldn't stomach the heavenly word any longer. Peter was proud of himself for getting the right answer before and was letting this whole rock of the church thing get to his head. And so being fixated on this earthly prestige and earthly glory, Jesus gives Peter now the nickname Satan, formerly called Rock. Jesus now says, if you see the ESV footnote, that he has become not just Rock of the Church, but Stumbling Stone. Footnote in verse 23. And this is exactly what happens to us, beloved. Peter is not an unbeliever. He's a Christian like you and me. Not some infallible pope. There's no mention here of a succession of bishops coming forth from him. He's given in a unique place in the history of the church, but he's also just a Christian like you and like me. And what happens to us when we begin to think too highly of ourselves? What happens to us when we get a little taste of that earthly glory and prestige that so lurks within our hearts, the heavenly word becomes distasteful. What happens when we begin to treasure earthly things? We treat heavenly things like trash. And we are even prepared to rebuke our gracious Messiah. You see, God's speech does not align with the ways of the world. Indeed, it cannot. 
For the world is in moral darkness. It does not know the light. And so no matter how uncomfortable the heavenly word might be, we must recognize that the problem is not in the word. The problem is always within us. Of course, there are times when we simply misunderstand the word. But there are many other times, plenty of times, when we are like Peter and we understand it just fine. We just want to excuse ourselves because we are too proud to heed it. And so we reject Messiah. We reject the heavenly word rather than receiving it. Beloved, if we are to follow Christ faithfully and to live a truly victorious Christian life, then we must first humbly receive that heavenly word. Our first point, receive the heavenly word. Second, let's recognize the kingdom's shape. Let us recognize the kingdom's shape. The disciples likely thought that Jesus was going to Caesarea Philippi in order to demonstrate his superiority over Rome. As if Christ would take on Caesar, mano e mano, overthrow him, and establish his messianic kingdom as just a more glorious version than that of Caesar. They may have thought that Messiah's religion would become more outwardly glorious than the pagan temples that surrounded them and filled that city. But Jesus had not taken them there to Caesarea Philippi to compare himself to Caesar as just a more glorious version or to compare his religion with the pagan ones as just a more glorious version. Instead, Jesus had taken them there to form a stark contrast. The kings of the earth are celebrated by the masses, are they not? But Jesus, unlike Caesar, he would not be celebrated, but soon be rejected by his very own leaders and in his very own city, Jerusalem. The kings of the earth, they receive much fanfare and earthly glory. But not Jesus. He would soon suffer and be killed in the most humiliating way possible. The temples and buildings in Caesarea Philippi would have dazzled the earthly eyes. But the kingdom of Jesus would look pitiful by contrast. Caesarea Philippi sat at the base of some breathtaking rock formations which inspired the awe of the people. Jesus' rock was much more humble than that. A man who simply confessed him to be Messiah and then who turned his back on him the very next breath. In other words... The kingdom that Jesus was founding was not earthly impressive to earthly eyes. 
but rather his kingdom would appear to be very weak and very feeble. This is, after all, what caused Peter to rebuke Jesus. How could Messiah be rejected and killed by the religious establishment? He was supposed to be enthroned in Jerusalem, not killed there. Peter had heard a word that sounded to him like earthly glory. He didn't want to depart from that. He didn't want Jesus to find suffering and death. What would that mean for him? If his king were put to death, what would happen to the rock? Not something very good. This is why Peter was then called Satan. This kind of reminds us of something earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus was in the wilderness with Satan, and Satan was tempting Jesus. And one of the ways that Satan tempted Jesus back then was to offer him a kingdom, to offer him earthly glory, if only he bowed the knee to Satan. In other words, Satan was offering Jesus glory apart from suffering. The very same thing that Satan did back in the garden. To offer the first Adam glory without obedience, without submission, an unauthorized path to glory. And now we find the rock who is Peter become a stumbling stone because he's offering Jesus that satanic temptation, hey, have glory, have a kingdom, but don't go through suffering. And so he is rebuked. After all, had Jesus taken him up on that, that would not mean victory. It would not mean victory for him or for you. Glory has to come first through suffering. The king made lowly. The king suffers. The king dies. Why? In order that the gates of Hades which is a metaphorical way of speaking about the very grip of death itself that slams its doors, that receives its victims into the underworld, a place of torments, a place of judgments, that that death and condemnation would not prevail. Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to be killed. He had to die, so the gates of Hades would not prevail. And as Jesus goes on to teach, the path of suffering was not for him alone. The kingdom is shaped by the king. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. As the king appears in this world, so then the kingdom appears in this world. As those rejected, as those humiliated, as those marginalized, as those hated and persecuted, not glorious to the earthly eye by any stretch, but rather, like our king, we are given a cruciform shape we are cross-shaped in this world. For this is the shape 
of triumph. This is the shape of victory. Being hated by this world is how we overcome this world. Being marginalized by the world of darkness is how the light shines brightest. The kingdom experiences the cruciform shape because the kingdom is shaped like the king. Triumph looks like defeat. Therefore, our second point, beloved, probably the hardest point that we must grapple with, to faithfully follow Christ in triumph, we must recognize and indeed embrace the kingdom's shape. Third, realize your callings. We must ask the more particular question in closing about what this looks like in practice. We have spoken now in generalities about the kingdom and how the kingdom triumphs in this age. But what does that mean in particular for you and for me? Now, our text does not answer this exhaustively, but it does break down our triumphant calling into three categories. Word, discipline, and self-denial. Word, discipline, and self-denial. Let's begin with that first calling, the word. Peter's initial success in our text is seen in that he received the heavenly word and then confessed it. This verbal confession of God's word is inseparable from his title, Rock. For recall, when he failed to receive and confess that heavenly word, he was then called Satan, not Rock. And it is in his faithful ministry of the word that Peter the Apostle becomes foundational for the church under the new covenants. Because Peter was proclaiming Jesus Christ, the true cornerstone. We will get to the other apostles in chapter 18 who share this very same calling with Peter. But we should not ignore the fact that Peter had a unique role to play, similar to the way that Paul will be given a unique role within salvation history. Peter gets things started. Paul then becomes that apostle to the Gentiles. That does not mean that either have a succession of bishops that come forth from them. No, they have a unique role to play. Who preached the very first New Covenant sermon? Who received that word and then confessed it very first in Acts chapter 2? Well, at Pentecost it was who? Peter. He preached that first sermon, proclaiming Christ among the Jews. Who then went to Samaria in order to witness the giving of the Holy Spirit to believing Samaritans? Well, again, Peter. He was there among the Samaritans. And who then rebuked a sorcerer for trying to purchase the Holy Spirit in Samaria? Again, it was Peter. Peter was the one. To whom then did the Lord grant the vision concerning Gentiles in Acts chapter 10? 
who was sent then to baptize the very first Gentile convert, Cornelius, Peter. Peter was the one sent there. You see, we are starting to understand how Peter would kickstart the church through confessing and proclaiming the very word of God coming down from heaven and going forth from his lips. This is not some form of earthly triumph that the world would recognize, but it is triumph in the sight of God. Triumph in this age is realized first by the proclamation of that heavenly word. So how first do we realize our callings, beloved? First, hear the word. Give voice to the word. Confess the word. May it not only come into your ears, but may it come forth from your mouth. The world does not see that as triumph, but it is triumph in God's sight. Our second calling has to do with the keys of the kingdom that Jesus bestows upon Peter. Now, these keys are not exclusively for Peter. Once again, we will come to more of this in chapter 18 of Matthew. So this isn't talking about Peter standing at the heavenly pearly gates and being the very one who individually opens the gates of heaven so that people may enter in after death or maybe shutting it in the face of people who come forth to those pearly gates. No, that's not the point here. Instead, these keys refer to church discipline, broadly speaking. Not merely the sort of narrow discipline of removing someone from the church, but also welcoming the unrepentant into the church. Again, this is not triumph to the earthly eye. For how do earthly kingdoms add to their number? They conquer. They plunder. They take. They ride forth in victory with horses and chariots, but not the keys of this kingdom. But rather the repentant are welcomed in, and those who are not repentant are shut out. This is a kingdom that goes forth by spiritual means. Christ prevails over Hades in this fashion. The word goes forth, sinners repent. The gates are opened and sinners are welcomed in to belong to that heavenly society. Triumph in this age is realized seconds by church discipline broadly conceived. And so, beloved, let us be mindful of this this day. That we are called to be in good standing with the church. We are called to hear its ministry, to heed its voice. For God has not chosen to speak through us through, to us through angels, but rather to give us a written and inspired text and then to speak to us through the ordinary mundane office of elder, through classes, through synod. God speaks to us and guides us. Now, what so painfully and often happens, we must be mindful of, is that we take those membership vows and we say, oh yes, I will submit to the government of the church. But then what so regularly happens is this, that when the government of the church comes and speaks, people say, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to close my ears to it. I want to ignore it. We must not do that. 
For you are received through the ministry of the church. And you must then heed the ministry of the church. This is not to pretend the church is infallible. No. But this is the ordinary channel through which God works. To receive you into that blessed communion. To receive you into the context of that heavenly kingdom. And then to shut it toward those who refuse its voice and its word. Again, this does not look like triumph in the eyes of the world. But this is triumph in the sights of heaven itself. Our first calling is to receive the heavenly word. Our second calling is to receive church discipline broadly conceived. The positive and the negative. Third, our third calling. We are called to self-denial. These things all build together, do they not? First, the Word. Second, to heed the Word. And third, to deny ourselves. And this is that practical outcome that we see in our personal lives. This is how the cruciform kingdom takes shape in the lives of individual Christians. It is as you and as I, like our King, Deny the path toward earthly glory. It is as we, like our King, stop aspiring for the riches of the world and seek instead a heavenly reward when the Son of Man returns. The disciple discovers that as we deny ourselves, that is when we very first find ourselves. It is as we renounce our life that we first begin to truly live. This is triumph. When we renounce the sinful pursuits of the age and its values and refuse to go along with it, we renounce all those things that Hades and Sheol use to try to ensnare us and entrap us and to bring us through those gates into death itself. When we renounce those temptations and the bait that the devil holds out to us for our bondage and capture, as we instead receive the Word, as we recognize the shape of the kingdom, as we realize these callings to heed the word and heed discipline and deny ourselves, then we find victory in the Christian life. We prevail over the gates of death and of Hades. And so, beloved, I urge you, do not fall for the counterfeit versions of victorious Christian living that's out there. Look to your king. Look to the one who suffered and was killed. Look to the one who spoke the heavenly word when it was unpopular to do so. Look to the one who provides us with a pattern and shape for the kingdom. Look to the one who denied himself. Look to the one who found victory through rejection and through suffering and embrace it. For it is there that we find life. 
It is there we find ourselves. It is there we find triumph. It is there we find victory. Do not fall for the counterfeits. Rather, look to the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know that today? Do you know his grace? Do you see his love for you even when you fall so far short? Do you know his tender care? Do you know how he bore death on your behalf in condemnation? Do you see how he denied himself for your sake out of love for you? Do you see that? Do you trust that? Do you find comfort in that? Beloved, if you trust in Jesus, you should. For he walked that path of suffering for your sake, that you might have that victory. And now with hearts of gratitude, may we now join him. Maybe embody him. May we look like him. Not to accomplish our own salvation, but in gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Deny ourselves and live that victorious Christian life. Amen.